2 Samuel 9.1 says, David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called, to, they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And then this footnote. Now he was lame in both his feet. So this passage of scripture has been preached uh, for obviously centuries, and most preachers love it because there are beautiful types and symbols and pictures in it about our relationship with our king, King Jesus. And I'm not going to avoid those tonight, but I'm also not going to, to bypass some of the other practical aspects of what it means to look like a person who's emulating not King David, but King Jesus. Because how many of you know that though King David's merciful in this passage of Scripture, how many of you know that King Jesus is immeasurably more merciful than King David? And how many of you have experienced just a touch of that mercy from King Jesus? You know what? I experience the mercy of King Jesus today. I will experience more of the mercy of King Jesus tonight before I go to bed. I will wake up tomorrow morning and one of the first things that will hit me will be the mercy of King Jesus. You say, well, Jeff, you sound like a terribly horrible sinner who needs a lot of mercy. And I would just tell you, I need a lot of mercy, but I'm going to tell you this. It's not because I'm a special type of sinner. It's because he is holy and glorious and good and there are none righteous, no, not one, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we we all need his mercy every single day. And hallelujah, he's ready to give it 
every single day. So let's take a look at David and Mephibosheth, and I'm going to blunder his name about 155 times during this message, so y'all just bear with me. I wanted to come up with it, you know, like call him Phoebe or something like that, that we just got to have a different name, but we'll go with Mephibosheth. So let's start out with David, though. And David is in this place in his life, and we see him as a king with a desire to show mercy. Now, let me give you a little background. So David is now, in this passage, going to be a king, not simply who's merciful, but with a desire to release mercy. It's one thing to have a merciful personality, a tender heart, a bend towards kindness or gentleness. It's an entirely different thing to be proactive with that, saying, who can I shower my kindness on? Who can I show mercy to? Who can I take out of the storehouse of my heart and pour mercy on? And that's where David is. By this time, David has been ruling and reigning in Israel for well over a decade. So we've, we've skipped a lot of years between the chapters that we've done in the last uh, several messages. So David has probably been ruling now somewhere close to 15 to 20 years. And he has received and received and received and received so much grace from God, so much glory from God, so much um, uh, prosperity from God in the physical realm, in the material realm, the financial realm, in the military realm. He's, his enemies are being put down. David is entering into the glory days of his reign. And as he has experienced so much goodness from God, he does something that not everybody that experiences the goodness of God does. A lot of people can experience the, the goodness of God and they get greedy with it and they get self-focused with it. But David's made of a different spirit and what David wants to do is take some of that goodness of God and pour it out on others. Pardon me. And so look with me in the first couple of verses. David, David starts speaking. So you can tell he's been thinking about it. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, is there still anybody, is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. If you're new to your Bible, Saul was the previous king and Jonathan was the son of Saul. David is now ruling. Saul and Jonathan are dead, but Saul was David's sworn enemy. David served Saul. David loved Saul. David did everything right before the Lord in regards to Saul. But Saul was a maniac. He was demonized. He wanted to kill David. And David was called to honor Saul all of Saul's days. And when Saul was killed, David became the king. And David is now 20 years maybe into his reign. And he's saying, is there anybody in my old enemy's house that's still alive? Now, you need to know something. In the days of the ancient kings, when a new king came to the throne, the common practice was this. You, when you enter into your throne, you find out where is every single male member of the previous king's family. I want to know where they are, and it's not to bless them. It's to kill them. They always wanted to wipe out any potential rival to the throne that came from the previous king's family. And so when a king starts asking around, hey, is there anybody in the former king's family that's still living? It's usually not good news. But for David, again, a different spirit. David was in a season where he was lacking nothing. He was needing nothing. And his desire was to show grace to anyone. That's what he asked. He's like, is there anybody out there? Not anybody deserving, not anybody impressive, not anybody that, uh, that has earned it, not anybody that might make me look good, but is there anybody in Saul's family, my old enemy, that for Jonathan's sake, Jonathan whom I loved, is there anybody that I can show kindness to? And so in verse number two, here's the answer. 
The Bible says there was a servant of the house of Saul. So a former servant of the former king whose name was Ziba or Ziba, however you want to pronounce it. So they called Ziba to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And Ziba's getting nervous. It's hard to pick up here in the English, but Ziba's getting nervous. And he's like, I, I, I'm your servant king. But we don't get it because we don't live in, a, in an ancient day in the Bronze Age with a bloodthirsty king. David was a warrior. David wiped out tons of people. You get called into David's office, it's an intimidating moment. So the first thing out of Ziba's mouth is, I want you to know I'm for you. I'm on your side. I'm on your team. I'm team David all the way. I got the white flag with the blue star. Me and you, David, we're going places together. I am your servant. And so David is getting met with this uh, former servant of Saul. And what Ziba doesn't know is David's not interested in, in killing Ziba. David is trying to find out information. And so in verse number three, here it comes. Here comes this beginning of this display of lavish mercy from the king. And the king said to Ziba, now he's got the inside track. He says, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba says to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, and then he adds this footnote that we'll come back to, he's crippled in his feet. Very quickly, historical footnote here. So two times in David's life when Jonathan and Saul were still alive, David made a promise not to wipe out the descendants of Saul. He said to Jonathan, I think it was in chapter number 20 of 1 Samuel, he said, Jonathan, I promise I will never wipe out your descendants when I am the king of Israel. Jonathan knew that God was going to make David the king. Jonathan said, swear to me, you won't wipe out my descendants. David said, I swear to you. A little later on, I think in chapter 24, he made that same promise to Saul. So David had made promises not to completely eradicate the lineage of Saul. And so David is not only wanting to just do the bare minimum, David had already kept his promise. I mean, think about it this way. David had done what he promised to do. He did not wipe out everybody, but David was expressing this beautiful kind of Sermon on the Mount spirit of if, if they say, if they demand you walk one mile, go with them too. If they want your outer garment, give them your inner garment too. It's one of those going the extra mile. David says, it's not only that I don't want to kill them, I want to bless them. And please remember to whom he's referring. He's talking about the house of his enemy. Now, this is always a good point to make because I don't care if it's a crowd this size or if the room is filled with hundreds or thousands of people, there's always somebody in the audience who's wrestling with a human enemy right now. And our human nature, not, not the Holy Spirit nature, our human nature, our flesh never wants to bless our enemy. Your flesh never wants to bless your enemy, whether they call you an enemy or you call them an enemy. Your flesh is always like, let's, let's get rid of them. Let, let's, let's whack them. Let's knock them out. Let's do something. Let's bring them down a notch. Let's do it. That's your flesh talking. But we're not people of the flesh. We're people of the spirit. And so the Holy Spirit says, I don't only want you not to whack them. I want you to bless them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to speak life over them. Now, raise your hand if that, you think that's an easy task to do on a consistent basis. That's a hard thing to do. But here's David saying, I want somebody from my old enemy's household to show up because I want to bless them. And Ziba says, I've got your man. And as a matter of fact, David, it's your son, it's your friend's son, your old friend, Jonathan. He has a son who at this time has grown up. And he adds this footnote. 
He says he's crippled in his feet. So I'm, I'm going to circle back to this. That all sets up the context. But let's talk about Mephibosheth. Let's talk about the son of Jonathan who is described as being crippled in his feet. Mephibosheth, as we move forward, is a man with a reason to fear. I'm going to tie all of this back in, so y'all stay with me. I know we're in slow gear right now, but y'all just stay with me because it's going to come home in a moment. Mephibosheth is a man with a reason to fear. Look at the reality of Mephibosheth. This is still in verse number three. He's called the son of Jonathan, and again, he's described as being crippled in his feet. So in verse three, the only thing we know about Mephibosheth is who his daddy is and what his disability is. That's all we've got. That's the only, the only information. His name, by the way, is a word. It's a, a name that is connected with the concept of shame. There's various different Hebrew scholars that say what kind of nuance it is about shame. Some say the name means coming from the mouth of shame. Others say that it, it's a word of shame. His name, Mephibosheth, is connected to the concept of shame. When he was five years old, we'll show you in a minute, something devastating happened to him. But, the, but beyond his name, we know that his daddy is Jonathan. And Jonathan was the best friend that King David ever had in his life. And so David is now finding out, not only do I get to show grace and mercy and kindness to somebody, but I get to fulfill it in a way that's going to bring deep pleasure to my heart because the one who needs my mercy is Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. But do you know what captures me about Mephibosheth's description? Is he's known primarily by his brokenness. He's described as one who is crippled in his feet. Yeah, we know his name. We know his daddy's Jonathan. But when somebody wants to talk about Mephibosheth, they talk about his brokenness. They talk about what's wrong with him. They talk about what's lacking with him, how he's not upright and how he's not quote unquote normal, how he is disadvantaged, how he is broken, how he is a struggler, how he is a stumbler. And by the way, in that culture, which was very different than the culture that we live in, there was a religious stigma attached to a disability. There was a social stigma attached to a disability. There was a relational stigma attached to a disability. To be disabled visibly in that culture was more than just struggling to get from point A to point B. It came with a whole host of things, including this thing called shame, which his name actually means. Why, why is that important? Because I, I just want to suggest to all of us that apart from the grace of God, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, apart from the mercy of God, I am Mephibosheth. And I'd be so bold to suggest that maybe you could consider that you are too known by your brokenness, known by what's wrong with you, unable to stand on your own two feet, having nothing to offer, chased by shame, and, 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 and even orphaned in the sense that he grew up without a dad, that orphan spirit, where do I belong? His, his family was once powerful, but they died in tragedy, and so much was lost to him as a young child. And, and Mephibosheth reminds me of who I was prior to meeting Jesus. For those of you who don't know I, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth I didn't I wasn't a good person and and when I when I first began to read of Mephibosheth when I got saved in the early 90s 
around the mid-90s, I started reading about Mephibosheth. I started seeing over and over, man, I've got so much in common with this guy. But the thing that got me the most is that, that I, I, before Jesus, what, what I remember most about my life is how broken and incapable and spiritually disabled I was. And that's the guy that David sought out, and that's the guy that David's going to help. Let me give you a little uh, word from, from a different chapter. Here's what happened to Mephibosheth, because inquiring minds might want to know, how did he end up disabled? What happened to him? Well, in 2 Samuel 4.4, um, 4, we, we find out about how this disadvantage happened. It said that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is when it happened. He was five years old, so Mephibosheth was a kindergartner. When the news about Saul and Jonathan, the, the news about their death, came from Jezreel, Mephibosheth's nurse, his, his, his nanny, took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and he became lame. So through, through no choice of his own, in a season in life where his grandfather was the most powerful man in the land, his father was the next in line, war was being made, and in one day his grandfather and his father died on the ba in the battle scene. And when that happened, the, the nanny, the nurse that was to take care of him, picks him up to flee, to take this little boy to safety, but in the panic and the chaos of trying to get him to safety, obviously she falls, and, and whatever she did when she fell, whether she landed on top of him, whether she dropped him completely, flew through the air, whatever happened left him with a permanent physical disability. Now, we find out later that by this time in the story, he's an adult. He's got his own kid. And so whatever his physical disability was, it wasn't that he was completely prevented from living any type of life, but it characterized him, whether it was just a constant walking with a limp, whether he was in chronic pain. Everybody knew that now the grown but young man named Mephibosheth suffered a horrible fall when he was but a young, young lad. I think also, I can't help but to make the parallel there, that you and I spiritually, and so let's, let's take this physical description of what happened to Mephibosheth and let's, let's lay it like a template and let's learn something spiritually. You and I also entered into a spiritual disability because of a fall. And the one who fell on our behalf was Adam in the garden when he rebelled against God when he chose the lie of the serpent over the truth of God, when he tasted of the forbidden fruit and willfully disobeyed God, we call that the fall. That's when sin entered into the human experience and sin was passed from Adam down through the heritage unto all human beings. Therefore, that's why we can say that we all were born with a sin nature. Sadly enough that we not only, only, we're not only sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. Jesus said that men love their darkness more than they love the light. There's something within us before we come to Christ that our nature, dead in its trespasses and sins, longs to do activities, and that's all because of a fall that wrecked us and warped us and moved us from our original design. You see, God designed Mephibosheth physically to be a healthy specimen. God designed human beings uh, spiritually to be spiritually healthy. But this thing called the fall has, has, has marred us. It's not a politically correct word anymore, but it has crippled us. 
And we are in the spirit apart from Christ what Mephibosheth was due to his fall. And so now we know how this man, who's now probably in his 20s, this is how it came to pass. A great fall caused great damage to him. And so as this word is now coming through Ziba, and David's hearing that there is a descendant of Saul, he's actually the son of Jonathan, but David, and it does make me wonder, I wonder why did Ziba want to add in the little detail about him being crippled? I could only surmise. Um, I'm wondering if maybe Ziba didn't think that a crippled man would be fit to receive the kindness of a king. Maybe Ziba didn't think that uh, Mephibosheth was the right kind of guy to be blessed by the kindness of David. Or maybe, maybe Ziba thought, well, right now, I'm kind of the big guy in Saul's household because all of his people are either in hiding or dead, and I don't want Mephibosheth coming out of this place of, of hiding to, to get the property of Saul. We don't know why. All we know is that when Ziba mentions Mephibosheth to David, he points out what's wrong with the guy. Can I just be a pastor for a minute? Can we grow up? Can we stop seeing and identifying people by what's wrong with them? Can we get out of this zone that we've been trained by Bible Belt dead religion? I don't, if you're offended, I forgive you, but I'm just going to say this. If, 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 if this training where we try to we size people up on sight and we start drawing conclusions about them based on what's wrong with them. Or maybe we spend a week with them or a month with them or a year with them. And, and, and our predominant thought about them is that, yeah, well, they may have a lot going on, but what I see is their brokenness. What I see is their lameness. What I see is their struggle. What I see is their stumbling. What I see is their spiritual limp. They're not strong. All I see is what's broken about them. Can we not do that anymore? And let me tell you why we, we can't keep doing that. What, what would we do if God dealt with us that way? Grace is the opposite. Grace is when you can note what is out of whack with somebody, but treat them as glorious people made in the image of God. It's when you can look at them and make a mental note that, yeah, something's out of whack with them. By the way, if you look in the mirror, spiritually speaking, you'll find out that something's out of whack with you too. And there's just got to come to this place where we're not like Zeba, where we say, yeah, here's so-and-so. And by the way, let me point out what's wrong with her. Let me show you what's jacked up about him. Let, let me let you be the first to know. And let me have the pleasure of telling you why you probably don't want to invest too much in this person because of, and you fill in the blank. We have got to graduate from that kind of nonsense. That's anti-grace. And so when, when Ziba is telling David this, look at what David does in verse number four. David just says that the king said to Ziba, where is he? Where is he, Ziba? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. L let me just stop here for a minute. Nothing that Ziba said negative about Mephibosheth knocked David off his mission to be a blessing to Mephibosheth. I love the fact that 
Zeba's saying, well, yeah, we've got Jonathan's son. I want you to know he's crippled in his feet when he was five years old. It was a big tragic accident. Now he walks and he's lame. Whatever Zeba's motivation was for that, David's going, uh-huh, uh-huh. You done yet? Okay. Where is he? Because I'm going to bless him. Where is he? Because it's in my heart. What, what, what flows in my heart is going to come out of my heart. And what's flowing in my heart is gratitude towards God and a desire to bless him. So can you do me a favor, Ziba? Tell me exactly where he is. I love that, man. I love people that have made up their mind that they are so grateful and so blessed by the Lord that they're not looking for people who deserve blessing. Because they recognize they themselves, I mean, listen, I don't, I, I don't want to be rude or ugly, but there's not a person in here that deserves the blessing of the Lord. God owes no man anything. Now, he loves to bless, and we can, we're, uh, he pours out blessing. I'm not saying, I'm just saying if we ever get to the place we think we deserve it, we just got disqualified from it. And so Zeba had said this stuff, and David's like, that's fine, I don't care about that. Just tell me where I can find them. And so he describes them, and even in these words of the description, I don't want to get too preachy here, but he says he's in the house of, of Makir. And that word, that name indicates one who is sold. It means a bought person. It, it, it smacks of, of enslavement. And he's in the house of Amiel, which is a Hebrew word that means the people of God. And he's living in this town called Lodabar which is a place that, that people say it means something either like there's nothing there or the place of no bread. So, so I want you to hear it this way. David says, Zeba, 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 just tell me where he is. And Zeba's like, I'll tell you where he is. <laughs> He's down there in li living as one who is sold into slavery among the people of God living in a place with no bread. That's the description of the place. That's the description of Mephibosheth's life. And listen, that's where Mephibosheth had been living. By the way, he's royalty. He's the grandson of the former King Saul. Saul was a disgrace, but he has in his bloodline royal blood, but he's living by the description that we're given here of the town and the family and the place he's living. He's living a pauper's experience hidden in a place that is beneath his destiny. And he's staying in a place, and when it says that he's there in the, in the house of, of Makir, and it, and it speaks of that place of bondage among Amiel, or Amiel, the people of God, it reminds me of so many. Can you turn me down a little bit? I think I got a ring going on. Reminds me of so many in, in the family of God that are living as slaves among the people of God, and therefore beggars looking for bread. That's the picture that I get when I read the description. Friends, that is beneath our destiny as the children of God. I'm not giving you a prosperity gospel message here. That's not my point here tonight. What I'm saying is this. If we are saved, then we don't need to be living as ones in the house of those that are bought by another in the sense of being sold as slaves. And if we are among the people of God, let us live as the people of God. And listen, pack your bags in the name of Jesus because he's not destined you or I to live in the place of no bread, the place of no provision, the place of just getting by, the place of barely making it. 
the place where, yeah, we've got a royal pedigree because we're connected to Jesus, but we're functionally barely making it through life with no fruit of the Spirit to eat on, no joy, no peace, no love, no kindness, no goodness. We're just living out desert-dwelling, nomadic life, even though we've got the name of Jesus attached to us. That's just not the destiny for us. Um, Some scholars think that uh, the reason why Mephibosheth was down there was because he was hiding. And we don't know that to be true, but if it wasn't common knowledge that David had made a promise to Jonathan not to wipe out the family of Saul, then all of Saul's relatives would probably be very hesitant to be in the presence of David. So I want you to think about this. From a five, from a kindergartner, he's had to learn to live every single day in some level of disability. He's trying to make the best life that he can. Somehow he gets married, he gets a son, but he is still defined as an adult by his weakest spot. So his whole life is, de- is defined in the context of this tragic thing that happened to his father and grandfather and this tragic thing that happened to him. My, my family's no stranger to, to drama and trauma. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, we're battling some stuff right now. Um, uh, Amy um, has, has battled her, her own horrible circumstances in life. Some of you have. Some of you have on your resume some things that you never wanted to be on your resume. You never wanted that stuff to be on your history. You never wanted that, that chapter to be in your life. But, but it's there. I'm going to tell you something. I want to help you here. You can't rewrite your story, but you can, be refu- you can refuse to be identified by the worst chapter in your story. Let me say that again. You can't completely rewrite your story, but you can refuse to be identified by the worst chapter in your story. And so Mephibosheth is about to get an opportunity to never again be identified by the worst chapter in his life's story. And so let's get towards that in verses 5 through 8. Here comes David. He's like a glorious mercy train barreling down on Mephibosheth. So now David knows where he is. And we're going to see here David is a messenger of kindness and grace. He's the most powerful man in the land. If he wanted to, if he was a man without integrity, he could find Mephibosheth and make an example and publicly execute him and nobody would have batted an eye, nobody but God. And, and David could have done that. It would have been normal in, in, in custom with the modern warriors and kings of that day. So David says, where is he? He finds out, verse number five, said, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Because Mephibosheth can never get to the king on his own, so the king went to him. The king sent and fetched Mephibosheth to come and see him. It's just another picture of grace. I mean, imagine if the king had, had, had sent a courier from the palace and just said, Mephibosheth, you got 10 days to make your way up to the palace because King David has summoned you. Well, a man who's lame in his feet couldn't have made it in that kind of time, living in a place that was so far away and hiding. But David goes to him and brings Mephibosheth to him. Again, another picture of grace. God going after you. God going after me. Can we remember that on a, on a Wednesday night? That none of us just woke up one day and stretched and said, yep, tired of my sin. I think I'm going to be an awesome Christian from this point forward in my life. Today's the day I'm going to get saved. God, you get to save me today. None of us did that. 
The grace of God was hounding us and chasing us and, and, and working in ways that are so mysterious and unknown to us and working in our heart. And grace opened us up to the gospel and we believed by faith, repented of our sins. We trusted Jesus, but he came. Listen, always, no matter what, I don't care if you're a Calvinist or you're an Arminian, I don't care if you're a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal, I just want to go ahead and say this, biblically true, God made the first move no matter what. Just, let's just agree to agree on that. There's a lot of things we can bicker about, but I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus said this, nobody comes under the Father, or nobody comes under the Son except the Spirit draw him. And so the Lord always made the first move. So when I wake up in the morning and I'm saved, I don't go strutting around the house as a saved guy. I say, oh, hallelujah, I'm saved because you made the first move, and thank you, I got to respond to it. But now David, the king, makes the first move towards Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is going to be brought to the king. And so in verse number six, it says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David just says one word, Mephibosheth. Guys, we can't get this scene. This is so dramatic. They don't have 2 Samuel 9. They don't know what's going on here. All Mephibosheth knows is the guy who replaced his grandfather as king, the guy who um, his grandfather wanted to kill, has now found out where Mephibosheth lives and has summoned him to get his backside up to the palace right now. And so Mephibosheth gets up there, and listen, just in an able-bodied person, this would have been a struggle, but he, he is disabled, and he gets down, the, the, the low got lower. He gets down and he falls on his face in front of David. He's fully expecting death. He's fully expecting to be executed. He's fully expecting the wrath of the king to hit him. He's been summoned by an intimidating king. The king brings him in. He does what only he can do. He just falls down in front of him and, and shows reverence unto David. And the first thing he hears from the king, it doesn't even say the king. It's so interesting that even I think this is important. It says, David said unto him. It doesn't say the king said, it's, it's a, David said unto him. It's so relational with David. David just says, Mephibosheth. Now listen, David and Jonathan were best friends. David knew Mephibosheth when he was a little boy. He hasn't seen him. And when, when we, we're not in the room, obviously, with him, but this is the way, you disagree with me if you want. I believe that David probably looks in the face of Mephibosheth, sees a little bit of Jonathan, and he says... Mephibosheth! Mephibosheth! And immediately, whew, all of the fear is going to be sucked out of the room. Guys, let me tell you, and some of you may be here this evening and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. I was one of those guys that grew up in the church. I prayed the prayer. I got dunked in the Baptist, baptistry pool when I was 14. Did all the religious Southern stuff. Went to VBS in Sunday school. Did all of that. And... Um, then intentionally walked away from it all around age 14 and entered into a, just a, a crazy lifestyle. And I had enough understanding of God and Jesus to make me scared and guilty. That's all I had. And so I ran from God. By the way, you know how stupid that is? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to get away to? I, but I lived my life running from God. And let me tell you why. Because I knew if he ever got me alone in a room, it was going to be, Jeff, 
and it was going to be, that's the way I felt. I could have never imagined that on August 4th of 1994, when he finally got me alone in a room, that he said, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. And he took me to himself in a similar way that David is about to minister mercy to Mephibosheth. If you're here and you're on the run, I'm just going to be bold with you. Um, and I'm not going to minimize sin. I don't do that. But it's also not my job to further indict you. The Holy Spirit does a perfectly fine job of that. But when he indicts us about our sin, it always is attached to an offer of full pardon. He doesn't indict you so he can trap you in this perpetual state of guilt. He'll say, hey, I, I, I want you to agree with me that the Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Spirit is holy. You've been living in an unholy way, and that's a violation of the personhood of God. And when you violate the personhood of God, there is a consequence to that. And, and so I'm indicting you for your sin, but I also want you to know, child, that the consequence was paid by another for you that Jesus paid that consequence. He took that penalty. He took that payment. And so, yes, I'm indicting you, but I'm also offering you a pardon. So if you've been running from the Lord tonight, I want you to know tonight, listen, tonight's a great night to, to hear him call your name the way David calls Mephibosheth's name. He's not screaming at you. He's not hollering at you. He's not trying to pound you further and further into smaller particles of dust. And I will risk this. He's not, he's not as angry with you as you feel he is. If you feel primarily that God is always angry with you, it's because the satanic opposition against you has grown and the gospel has shrunk in your mind. The enemy wants to keep us away from this merciful, amazing king, and he, he uses these threats and accusations that God is angry. God is furious. God is going to get you. God knows what you did. Well, listen, God does know what you did. He knew it before you did it. You didn't catch him off guard. He's never been shocked by what we do. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, God had already prepared his best. It is because God loved the world that he sent his son. It wasn't so God could love the world that he sent Jesus. It was because he already loved us that he sent Jesus. And so there's no sense in running. And Mephibosheth, he didn't know what was about to happen, but it was going to be the best day of his life. So in verses, uh, into verse 6 through verse 8, David has just said one word, Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth answers, Behold, I'm your servant. Those are scary. That's, I am afraid of you, but here, here's my loyalty. That's what he's saying. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now watch that. That's bonus. Here comes double bonus. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, and this is Mephibosheth talking, what is your servant that you should so, show regard for a dead dog such as I? Do you get the vibe? So Mephibosheth has learned in Lodabar, the place of no bread, in the house of Machir, the house of enslavement, in, in, among God's people in Amiel, Mephibosheth as the crippled one who was orphaned at a young age, his self-identity is, I am a dead dog. I am worthless. I am nothing. How can you even say this to me? 
Folks, that's, that's people we work with. That's people we go to church with. That's, that's the people in the room, people not in the room right now. These are our schoolmates, classmates. These are our young adults. These are our students. There are so many people who everything they believe about themselves is a lie about their identity, and they view themselves as the flea on the back of a dead dog baking in the sun. And that's not the way God sees us. And so Mephibosheth just gets cranked with all of this kindness, and he doesn't know what to do with it. I mean, let me just real quickly, let me tell you what David just said to him. He says, first of all, he goes, quit being afraid of me. I'm a really good king. I'm not like, I'm not like your grandfather was. Saul was a terrible, murderous, violent, insane, demonized king. David says, that's, that's not how I am. I brought you here not to hurt you, not to kill you. I am really just like busting at the seams to pour out some kindness on you. I want to be good to you, Mephibosheth. And by the way, Mephibosheth, something else you need to know about me. I keep my promises, so I want you to know you can trust me. I, I told your daddy that I would take care of his children, and I find out today you're one of his kids. I want you to know, Mephibosheth, I'm the kind of king who's going to keep his promises, and so you can trust me. The third thing, Mephibosheth, I'm actually going to restore to you everything that was taken from you. Come on, somebody. I know it's Wednesday, but come on. He said, I'm going to give you back all of the land that belonged to your grandfather. Mephibosheth is, is renting a house from Makir in some podunk town that has no bread, no life, nothing for him. And meanwhile, his heritage is that of royalty. And it takes David summoning Mephibosheth into the palace to say, I'm giving you back your dignity. I'm giving you back what you're entitled to. I'm giving you back everything that you've been missing. I'm giving you back what you've never tasted. He lost all of that when he was five years old. He's never known the life that God had for him. Why? Because it was hidden under all of the trauma and all of the drama. And David, the king, is calling him out of that. And he's saying, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you back everything that life stole from you. And then he says, and if that wasn't good enough, I'm the king and Mephibosheth, you see that fourth seat right here on the right of our banquet table? Yes, king. That's your seat. Anytime you want to eat with me, I want you right up here with my boys. I want Ammon and Absalom and all of the other sons of David. I mean, picture the scene. Picture the dinner bell gets rung in the palace. You've got Absalom coming in there all buff and cut, good-looking, long hair. He's the good-looking dude. You've got Ammon, Amnon, and you've got all the other sons of David, and they're slowly making their way to the table. They sit down. You've got this empty chair, and then all of a sudden, you, you just kind of hear this coming down the hallway. Slow steps. Everybody looks up, and there he is. It's, it's Mephibosheth. He's lame in his feet, but he's invited to sit at the king's table. He's known by everybody else about what's wrong with him, but in the presence of the king, he's a celebrated son. Mephibosheth says, I, I am your servant. And David says, I know that's what you think because you've been living down in Lodabar. I get it, but let me just tell you. I want you at my table as one of my sons. I dare you. I double dog dare you to start believing that King Jesus views you like that. 
can you leave room in your heart that Jesus is a better king than David? That Jesus loves you more than David loves Mephibosheth? That Jesus has paid a far greater price to make a spot for you at this table as one of his sons or daughters than David did for Mephibosheth? Can you dare to believe that he wants you seated there among the sons and the daughters of God, banqueting with him whenever you want to? Can you believe that about yourself? Can you believe that in, there is a very real sense in which he wants to start pouring out kindness on you that you've never known before? Because he really wants us to know the difference between a, a salvific pardon, a pardon of salvation, versus a religious probation. There's a few of us in the room that know about probation. I know firsthand about what probation's like. Been there, done that, back in the day. It's very different from a pardon. A pardon, you're free, you're not going back no matter what. A probation, it's every day, report, every day, toe the line, every day, you can, at any moment, you can be right back where you were. What David is offering to Mephibosheth is to know this, I'm going to pour kindness on you, I'm going to give you back your inheritance. Everything that you've ever missed. Listen, these are going to be years where the people of God start getting back some of what the enemy has stolen. I, I'm just, I'm, listen, and this is not my normal mode of preaching, but I, I, I am wrestling through some of my theology right now simply because of this ridiculous diagnosis over my body. And, and it stirs up a fight in you. Stirs up a fight. And, and, and when you start, you start realizing, man, there's a lot of religious talk goes around, gets passed off as Christianity, and I'm getting kind of tired of believing any of it. I don't want to believe any of that stuff. And, and when, when cancer starts whispering to you, your mind, you just got to look cancer in the eye, and I can't really say what I want to say, but I want to say to cancer, buzz off. That would be the appropriate way to say it. Just buzz off. You don't have any authority in my life. Why? Because the Lord is restoring the years that the locust ate. And so when we start thinking like that, instead of thinking about, no, I'm just a citizen of Lodabar, and in Lodabar there's no bread and there's nothing down there for me, and I'm just getting by, and I'm just hiding out, and I just want to be ignored by the king. And I, no, 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 you're living beneath your destiny because the king says, I want to give back to you everything that the enemy stole from you. Do you want it back? And the choice is often ours. So we get down into the last few verses. We really are. I'm not teasing you. Verses 9 through 13. And let's just look at how it plays out, and then we'll be done. Mephibosheth is viewed in the end as a man with a stunning inheritance. I love this. This is kind of cool. Verses 9 and 10. So this is what it looks like when he gets his inheritance restored. Remember, he's just now getting up off the floor, being told he's going to eat with the king that night. And, and now the king is about to make it real to him. So in verse number 9, the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul... And to all his house, I've now given to Mephibosheth, your master's grandson. So Ziba, I don't know what you've been doing with all that stuff that used to belong to Saul, but if you ever thought it was yours, it's not. It is now going to be his, verse number 10. And Ziba, you and your sons and your servants, so Ziba was the servant of Saul, but since Saul was out of the picture, Ziba's been prospering. So now he's got a big old family. He's got his own servants. It sounds a little bit, I'm just, I don't know it's true. Sounds a little bit like to me that Ziba prospered when Saul was killed on the battlefield, while Mephibosheth, 
who had a bloodline to Saul, is floundering in the place of Lodabar. Ziba's living it up off of an inheritance that doesn't belong to him. That's just my opinion. But in verse 10, he says, You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, for Mephibosheth, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Whoop, I'm just about to get excited here. Lodabar means the place of no bread. And David just said, Zeba, everything's flipped. Now, you guys are going to serve Mephibosheth because the guy who came from no bread town is about to have all the bread that he needs. And you're going to bring it to him. I know, it's Wednesday night. This would have rocked on a Sunday morning, but it's just, that's okay. I get it. I, to, I totally understand. That's, that's what reversal looks like. Some of y'all think y'all are 25 years or never going, you're 25 years away or never going to get a reversal. Mephibosheth got it in a day, never saw it coming. There was no sign. There was no prophet. There was, no, there was a summons by the king because the king had it in his heart. It was time to bless somebody. And so he brings them up out of the place of no bread and says, now you're going to have fields. You're going to have workers in those fields. Those fields are yours. I'm restoring them to you. Oh, Mephibosheth, you say you never knew you had those fields? Of course you didn't because nobody ever told you the truth while you're living in the land of no bread. So I'm bringing you up out of the land of no bread. You see out there, all of that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Now it's all yours. And this guy over here, Zeba, he used to work for your grandfather. I don't know what he's been doing for the last 15 years, but now he's going to work for you and he's going to till that land and you'll never be hungry again. And you'll never be poor again. And you'll never be known primarily by what's wrong with you again. And you're never going to be known as the, the constantly crippled guy again. Why? Because you're going to have a place at my table because I want you to sit as a son instead of uh, um, um, limping like a servant. We just, we, we just got to start giving ourselves spiritual permission to believe he's that good to us. He's got to be better than David, Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus has got to be better than David. So Mephibosheth has just got his whole world spun around. Everything that Saul forfeited on behalf of Jonathan, Mephibosheth got to enjoy. Saul forfeited it. Jonathan honored it in his relationship with David, and Mephibosheth got to enjoy it. It is a, a beautiful picture of Adam lost it on us. Adam fumbled it in the garden. By one man, transgression enters in. We all inherited that. But because of the faithfulness of Jesus, represented by Jonathan, we, as Mephibosheth, get to enjoy what, what Jesus restored from what Adam lost. Adam loses it, Jesus secures it, we get to step into it. That's what the Lord has done for us. And so verse number 10, I just love this picture. It's more of the same stuff. It just When the Bible says the same thing over and over again, there's two reasons. One, it's important for us to hear it more than once. But two, it's so good we need to hear it at least twice. So Mephibosheth, David's still talking. 
But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, you're going to work the fields for him. You're going to bring food home to him. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson's always going to eat at my table. And then it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You thought I was making that stuff up. So literally, when they had the royal dinner, you've got all of David's natural family there, and you've got the grandson of David's lifelong enemy sitting at the table, welcomed just like a natural-born son of King David. That's grace. That's kindness. That's mercy. That's what Jesus has done for us. Listen, I'm I'm just going to provoke your sanctified imagination. I got two minutes. There's literally coming a day, and I don't know exactly how it all works, but there's literally coming a day where you're going to look the Apostle Paul in the eye. You're going to say, hey, hey, Paul. (laughs) Hey, I'm Jeff. Good to meet you. David? David, hey, how are you? Moses? Ruth? Mary Magdalene, is that you? Simon Peter, Andrew, we're all going to be at this banquet. And let me tell you something. Nobody's going to be strutting. Nobody's going to be chest thumping. And nobody's going to be walking around saying, how did I, a dead dog, get into this? You know why we're not going to be saying it? Because the light of the, of the glory of heaven is the Lamb of God. Everybody's going to know while we're all there. There's not going to be any dead dog syndrome up there saying, oh, I'm just a dead dog. I'm just. We're, everybody's going to look and everybody's going to know the only reason we're here is because of what the Lamb of God has done. He's the reason we're here. So we'll be able to look Paul in the eye and James in the eye and, and, and Esther in the eye and Ezra in the eye and all of that, all of the ones that we, oh, are heroes of the faith. And everybody's going to be like, hey, hey, can, can we stop talking for a minute? Let's just look at Jesus together. Let's just behold the glory of the Son of God and let's just worship him together. That's kind of what it means to sit at the king's table for the rest of our days. The last little image, and it's not unique to me, is picture this. You've probably heard this said before, but it's just too good of a point. Mephibosheth makes his way down that hallway. He, he gets into the chair and when he sits down at it and they're all at the table together, everything that's broken and wrong with him is underneath the table. Everything that's visible, he looks like everybody else. That's all grace. The grace, call it the tablecloth, if you will, covers all the brokenness, all the lameness, all that's wrong, and he's no longer identified by what ruined him or ailed him in his past. He's now sitting at a place invited by the king himself, a place where he is regarded as a son. That's your destiny. That's your identity. Will you stand to your feet tonight? (sighs) So now we, we just need faith. We just need to say yes. That's, that's just really it. So, Father, empower our yes. No shame, no low to bar. No being identified by what is most broken in us. None of that, Lord. We just say thank you for making a spot at the table for us. We want a banquet with you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you paid to make that our reality. 
We love you. In your name, amen.